The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. Here we are again, week number... 74. Wow. Look at us. I have to know that because I have to save the podcast before we right. do this. And so it's episode number 74. And, you know, we're closing in on our 100th episode. And I think, you know, it'll be good to do our 100th episode. We'll have to think of something really special to do for that. Maybe yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should interview someone we've interviewed before or... I don't know. We'll think of something pretty cool. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I don't doubt we will impress those who are listening. I'm hoping at least. Um, it was interesting. I was just talking to Steve about where in the country people are downloading uh, the podcast. And I saw that there are a lot of people from Massachusetts who are downloading it. And me personally, I grew up in Massachusetts. I know and you're a mass guy. I'm a mass guy. I grew <laughs> up uh, about 20 minutes south of Boston. And uh, I was there my whole life until I went to college. And when I came back from college, you know, already being a drug addict and seeing the the inception of the opioid crisis and how it was affecting where I grew up and the people around, the people that I knew and stuff like that. There's like two groups of people that knew me living in Massachusetts. One was as like some good kid going through high school and you'll know, see what happens. And then the other side are the people that knew me after I became a drug addict and I was kind of running around the area like a maniac. <laughs> and so I hope I'm speaking to people from both those groups of people that knew me at one point in my life. And I'm hoping that what we're doing here is affecting a change, is inspiring hope or whatever to the area where I grew up in because, of course, I have a lot of you know affinity for that area and hope that people are finding solutions to addiction out there. Well, if they're listening to us, they, they have to know that we give them solution after solution. Um, you know, even though you work at Narcan on Suncoast and this podcast is sponsored by Narcan on Suncoast, we have brought to the table a lot of resources for people, mm-hmm. you know, mentoring resources, informational resources, um, you know, there's just no end to, um, you know, what we bring to the table, I think, with a podcast. And even in fact, today, we're going to talk to an author who has like a completely different take on the opioid epidemic mm-hmm. and, and another way of addressing it. And um, I decided I was going to call the name of this podcast um, interview with Dave Chase, Healthcare Revolutionary, because Ooh. he really is, you know, after totally um, revolutionizing, you know, the healthcare in the country. But he also ties that in with the opioid epidemic, which I think is something we have kind of sort of touched on a little bit, but probably not to the extent that he does in his book. So I'm excited to talk to him and get oh, his take about it. Absolutely, because you I mean think about how much of the uh, how much of the primary care physicians out there find themselves prescribing opioids. Exactly. And exactly. you're just adding to their problem if they're not doing it responsibly. Exactly. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Dave before we talk to him. He is the co-founder of the Health Rosetta that consists of two main pillars. One impact education certification that is building the L-E-E-D-like ecosystem for healthcare, media that includes the film and books. The Big Heist is the first fiercely nonpartisan film to tackle healthcare. I want to I say one point about that. The th- one of the things I like is that he's nonpartisan. Oh, definitely. You know, the, the partisanship in this country can get so nasty and so divisive um, I will tell you right now, anybody listening to this podcast, if we're friends on Facebook and you start 
you know, going down the road of politics, I won't follow you anymore. It's not that you're not my friend. I just won't follow you because it just gets so nasty. Then he, it also says that um, Health Rosetta publish, publish the CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare to Your Employees at Half the Cost, and the Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call, which is kind of what we're going to talk to him about today. Um, and then the second pillar of Health Rosetta is investment, backing the transformation of healthcare, including the Quad AIM Fund, a seed stage venture fund, and working with family offices on special purpose vehicle investments in healthcare's transformation. Um, he, basically, he was on a TEDx talk I guess that's maybe that's his program uh, entitled Healthcare Stole the American Dream. Here's how we take it back. And it sums up healthcare's devastation of the middle class and the redemption coming via a bottom up movement. Dave was named one of the most influential people in digital health due to his entrepreneurial success, speaking and writing. He delights in sharing how high-performing organizations have solved healthcare's toughest challenges. He co-authored the Healthcare Book of the Year in 2014. He was the CEO, co-founder of Avado, acquired by and integrated into WebMD and Medscape, the most widely used healthcare professional site. Before Avado, Chase spent several years outside of healthcare in startups as founder or consulting roles with LiveRes.com, Market Leader, and What Counts. He also played founding and leadership roles in launching two new $1 billion businesses within Microsoft, including their $2 billion healthcare platform business. He's a father of two great kids who are athletes. He's a husband, and he is also an athlete. He is an oxygen-fueled mountain athlete. Do you know what that is, Jason? What? specifically is that uh, not oxygen sure fueled we'll ask him but it also says that his oh i know i, just, uh, I think i just figured it out when you go to the high altitude you have to take oxygen tanks oh that might be what it is okay well his 2014 team placed third in their division and 24th overall of 500 teams the u.s's oldest adventure race that's what that is i guess where dave tackled the nordic ski leg he was a former pac 12 800 meter competitor He's a creator of Health Rosetta and co-founder of the Health Rosetta ecosystem. Going to be an interesting podcast today. His book, once again, is called The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call. And that's why we're talking to him today. So I'm going to get him on the phone. All right. Dave, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I've, I've already told the listeners all about you and who you are. So thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Looking forward to the chat. Great. Now, how did you first become interested in the opioid crisis? Well, certainly it's in the public consciousness, you know, and so I've heard about it there. But um, it was really, I, my focus has been on kind of the broad healthcare dysfunction. And as I dug into that, um, you know, of course, you couldn't miss the opioid issue. Um, and as I really dug into that over the last couple of years, I realized, wow, this is actually a microcosm of the even larger healthcare dysfunction. Um, and just the way that we treat addiction in general in this country is very problematic. 
Um, and so it's, it really just shined a light on issues I was aware of, but just through a new prism. And so that's what really got me into it. Plus, you know, having some personal connections with it as well um, certainly got me uh, energized to really dig into this issue. Can you tell us what your personal connection is? Well, uh, basically friends uh, who've lost, you know, high school, college age kids, you know, to, you know, to pretty typical was, you know, high school sports injuries, actually even a handful of them, you know, high school sports injury, um, you know, then ended up walking out with 30, 60, 90 day supply of, you know, something like Oxycontin or Vicodin and got addicted. And then just this, you know, it's pretty much, you know, if you take these opioids over seven days, it's essentially Russian roulette. One in six people will become addicted. Um, and so, you know, no, you know, nobody wants to lose any friend or family member, but it's especially gut wrenching when it's, you know, somebody's kid. Um, and so that certainly gets your attention. Yep. You know, it's interesting. And I've told this story a couple different times. I won't make it too long because this is more about you than about me, but I threw my back out very badly. I had a lower back injury when I was a teenager. And so there's some arthritis there. And I threw it out very badly about a year ago when I went to LA for the birth of my new grandkids. And I went to visit an orthopedist and he gave me a prescription for steroids, which I knew was going to solve the problem because it was just inflamed and that was why it was hurting me. But he also gave me a prescription for a very heavy duty painkiller, which I can't remember the name. Vicodin. No, but it was Nor- 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 Norco. Norco is a high dose. Norco, Vicodin. that's right. Norco. And that was the same medication that my daughter-in-law had just been prescribed after a C-section, which was major surgery. And... I I just thought, I'm not going to take that because I knew that the steroid would handle the pain. And in fact, it did. It may have taken a little longer than I liked, but it was just amazing to me that I, that, that he would give me that prescription rather than maybe saying, here, take the steroids. If that doesn't help, come back and see me. Do you know? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you really hit on a huge issue and a huge on-ramp to the opioid issue in particular in that um, there's very little evidence, if any, that for musculoskeletal issues, you know, back pain being the one that is most common, you know, 80% of adults will have an acute back pain issue that, you know, that's been my health, you know, issue that I've contended with off and on. Um, And there's very little evidence uh, that opioids are appropriate. Um, you know, it, like you said, it can be steroids, but frankly, a lot of times, um, we are treating fundamentally a mechanical problem with a chemical, you know, it would be like, uh, you have brake pad problems or your wheels are out of alignment and we say, okay, let's go use some brake fluid. Like that's a different problem. You know, that's a different solution for a different problem. Um, and we, boy, it's just incredible the rate of drugs that are thrown out at people for things like lower back pain, which is so common. Right. That's really interesting. Yep. I find that fascinating actually, because if, if the medic, if the medical industry understands that, which I'm sure they do, then why are we in the situation we're in? 
But that, I just find that really interesting. Well, I have an know, idea it, that Dave's it, book it addresses that. <laughs> I find that I just find that so fascinating because it's like if that science is known and that's out there, you'd think there would be some sort of pull away from that. Well, it's known and it's not known. Um, it's not like it's a state secret. Um, however, uh, you get very little training in medical school around um, both kind of physical medicine, you know, things that you know, typically are getting treated with physical therapy, uh, as well as um, mental health issues. A lot of times there's a confluence of these issues. Um, and what you find is that um, the Enlightenment didn't really hit um, medicine. And so, you know, the Enlightenment was all about, you know, scientific inquiry and, you know, in a sense, questioning authority and, and old practices. It really still follows the Greek model of kind of fealty to authority. And if you look at the way doctors practice, it is massively impacted by who they trained under. And so, you know, that person you trained under, you know, may have had the best available information, you know, in 1975 when they went through. Um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, just lack of, of information. And then, and then there's a bunch of other factors that can have contributed to why there's such a overprescribing and overtreatment. But it is really there's um, one of these crazy statistics um, that, you know, one of the experts, um, you know, on um, health benefits plans shares, you know, these are just kind of rough estimates. Um, but basically, 2% of the entire U.S. economy is tied up in non-evidence-based musculoskeletal uh, procedures. Um, and, you know, that might take the form of a prescription. It might take the form of a MRI. It might take the form of a spinal procedure. Uh, you know, at Virginia Mason uh, is a great hospital in the Seattle area. They did a study with Starbucks employees, and they found that fully 90% of the spinal procedures they were doing didn't help at all. Uh, they would have been more uh, impacted by physical therapy. Right. And unfortunately, the you know that's one of the areas that's just you know terrible. I mean, you know, in your neck of the woods, um, you know, Tiger Woods, you know, and his back problems, um, you know, he he's pretty much been destroyed, you know, in many ways by too many back surgeries. Steve Kerr is another one, you know, the Golden State Warriors coach. Um, so it's a big problem area that um, you're not necessarily solving the problem, but then you're creating a whole other problem in terms of addiction. Right. Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in your book you talk about um, undermining primary care. What what does that have to do with the opioid crisis? Make that connection for me. Yep. Um, Basically, what we call primary care in this country, you know, I, I sort of joke there's a new special specialty was created when they changed the way they would pay for primary care. Um, we call it referral list um, because now primary care docs in this uh, model where they don't get paid much in order to make a decent living, they need to get people in and out in seven minutes. Um, and so you think about seven minutes 
Um, what can you do in seven minutes? And the economic drivers are such that the way they articulate is they're always looking for a quote exit strategy. You know, how do they get out of the exam room? And if you're, you know, as old as I am, you re- remember when it wasn't like that, you actually had some time to talk to your doc. And so in seven minutes, what can you do? Um, you can maybe find, you know, one issue and, and then the exit strategy might take the form of a prescription, a ordering a test, referring to a specialist and so on. Um, and so that's one where, and then you couple that with how, um, a well-intended thing of paying them on um, patient satisfaction, which sounds good in theory, mm-hmm. um, but with people come in and the fact is advertising works and they think that a pill is the solution to their problem and they're not given a pill, um, they might ding that, that doc. And so there's all kinds of pressures on them from the patient to the hospital administrator to get it in and out that then against that backdrop, the um, opioid makers gave them bad information, basically said, Hey, these aren't addictive. Right. In fact, there was this additional um, thing at play of pain, frankly, had been under treated for a while. And so there was some uh, focus on that. And in particular, they, added this notion of pain as a fifth vital sign, you know, like your blood pressure and your heart rate and your temperature. Um, And so suddenly, you know, that became a big focus, which um, sort of just added fuel to the fire. Um, So really this undermined primary care um, really created fertile ground for this opioid issue. And when you have, now on the other hand, when you have, Great primary care. Now, I'll give you an example, another example in your neck of the woods over in Orlando. Um, there's a case study in my book on Rosen Hotels, you know, where their staff, you know, with maintenance workers and and maids. I mean, these are physically demanding jobs. So in theory, you would see you'd expect to see more, um, you know, back problems and so on. Right. Um, but they handle things right. They get primary care right. And so they have no opioid problem. The level of opioid prescriptions is like one-sixth of the level of the typical employer. Um, I mean, it puts it sort of a similar level to, um, you know, France or Italy, and, you know, they don't have the benefit of, of the great French and Italian food, you know, and they still, still do it. Um, and the nice thing, you know, beyond, you know, avoiding that issue is – these people are able to be fully functional, not only at work, but at home. Um, and by avoiding these unnecessary and avoidable procedures, uh, there's this huge dividend. Literally, um, they turn that around and have the best benefits package of any company I've heard of in the country, which includes paying for employees and their kids' college education, if you can believe that. Oh, my goodness. You know, because they're spending, yeah, despite spending 50, so because they're spending 50% less on health care, despite having the best benefits package I've ever heard of, wow. um, they're able to afford that 
Well, plus you not know, to really a not, working class population. Sorry, I was going to say plus not losing people like for downtime, you know, or missed work right. and having to pay for that. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I think that I mean, there's you're right. There's a direct correlation between you know a company that's that's taking responsibility for their employees and and doing it right. Yep, and and the thing that's really an important takeaway as you know right as we're talking there is imminent legislation coming out of dc around the opioid issue and there's some good things in there um i don't want to be overly critical um but they don't take the full view of what's going on um with this and kind of look at the the upstream issues and what's creating the enabling conditions for it and in particular, um, it doesn't really address the fact that um, employers are the biggest unwitting enabler of this um, opioid issue. And you say, okay, why is that? Well, consider that, you know, who's impacted by the opioid crisis overwhelmingly? They're working age people and their dependents. Um, and, you know, most people... Um, you know, if they're not um, low income or elderly, they get their benefits through their job. And so it's yours and I's benefits if we're getting our benefits through the, your, your job. And unfortunately, one of the drivers was these non-evidence-based things we're talking about earlier, like an opioid prescription for a lower back pain, are easily getting paid for. And then the things that are evidence-based like physical therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy either aren't paid for by the administrators of the health plan uh, or they're just so difficult to access. Um, and if you look at Rosen, you know, they thought they might need a PT half a day a week, given their staff, they've got like 5,000 people right. um, on their staff. Um, turns out they need a full-time PT uh, and they not only, you know, can address issues when they flare up, but they go out onto the, the, into the workspaces and, you know, teach people how to stretch and, you know, how to lift beds and, you know, things like that. Right. And so it's it, money incredibly well spent um, to avoid these issues from cropping up to begin with. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast. If you would like further information on the topic we are speaking about today or further information on Narcan on Suncoast, or just further information on the addiction problem and the addiction podcast, you can reach us at 1-877-339-3324. Again, that's 1-877-339-3324. Wow. You know, it's interesting, as you were, as you were talking just then, I was thinking that, you know, I, I, personally have always used chiropractors and nutritionists pretty much for, you know, 90% of any health issues that have come up. And, mm -hmm. and that's something that typically insurance doesn't pay for. You know? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? You yeah. Know, the things that actually work, um, you know, and I mean, to round out the Rosen story, they also have um, chiropractic services and a dietitian, uh, you know, full-time in their clinic as well. Um, and so, you know, they, they've just been very systematic 
you know, as, as any organization should be, given how big a spend it is, uh, unfortunately most aren't, um, to, to really get at the root cause. You know, what is causing these problems? Um, and then just working back from there and being diligent about it. And it's, it's great what they've done, but it's frankly not rocket science either. Right. It's, it's common sense, actually. But it, yeah. but it may also be, like you say, not the quickest route necessarily. Like it may have involved a little bit more, you know, research and more, you know, care to the details. But, you know, it sounds like it's working out for them. I, it makes me, if I wanted to go look for a job, it makes me want to go contact Rosen Hotels, see if I could work no for them. No kidding. But you can imagine uh, in an industry where there's very high turnover, their turnover is one-sixth of their competition. You know, because for exactly that reason, it's, I mean, they, I mean, boy, if you wanted a college education and your kids, wow, what a deal. Seriously. Um, and they certainly care for them and, and uh, you know, just make sure that people are on the right track. And, and people are capable if they're given the right guidance, um, but a lot of times they're not given good information. Right. What, what in your view, should primary care look like? Well, we touched on some of it. Um, first of all, how it gets paid for is really important because that sort of sets the uh, path. And so right now, you know, we do the equivalent of um, sending our Jiffy Lube visit through, you know, our State Farm, you know, auto policy, which is, you know, nuts. Um, and so you shouldn't pay for primary care in that way. You basically should make um, primary care available without barriers, um, you know, to torture the Rosen example, it's free for the employees. Um, and not only that, they allow the employees to go there on the clock because they realize, oh gosh, we make it free, but they're not going. Why is that? Well, it's money off the table. Um, if they're not on the clock and then some still didn't go like, oh, why is that? Well, they didn't have transportation. You know, and so they said, OK, you get it free on the clock and we'll transport you there. Um, and so they just remove the barriers. And so that's number one is it should be in you know, it means you invest a little bit more in primary care. Typically, it's only getting two to five percent of the health care dollars um, when it's probably should be more like eight or 10 percent. But the downstream is so significant. And when you actually have proper primary care. And I put my family where my mouth is, not only for my own family, but my folks. Um, they can address 90% of the issues people come into the healthcare system for. Um, if it includes the things we mentioned, like, um, sure, the doctor, um, PT, nutrition, health coaches, pharmacy, all these things, if they're not literally in the practice, they're very tightly integrated with right. that. Right. Um, and so you just make that uh, as as accessible as possible. And if you one of the other distortions that we have in our system is not only we pay on this kind of piece part thing of, of um, you know, how many visits, but we don't even pay if, you know, you just want to email your doctor um, Well, everywhere else in our life. You know, we can communicate electronically. Well, that barrier is removed, whether it's, you know, in any of these great primary care models, because the reality is if you actually ask doctors, how much of the time do you really need to see the whites of the eyes of the patient? Typically, they'll say, eh, 
a third, a quarter of the time, maybe in some extreme examples, up to half the time, but that's, you know, half, two thirds, three quarters of the time, they don't need to see the whites of your eyes. And so rather than wasting your time, taking time off of work, um, that can address the issues if there's a pre-existing relationship that you have. Um, So just make it easy to access um, and do things in there. Um, You know, like in my folks, um, primary care clinic, I think it's notable that their clinic is in the same parking lot as a grocery store, you know, not in the shadow or inside of a medical tower. Because you know what? Most people, their issues are more about the grocery store. You know, they don't know how to grocery shop, you know, because they are buying stuff that's doing them a lot of harm. Right. Um, And what other people, you know, they have a story of this woman who, you know, relocated because the Medicare Advantage uh, program uh, she relocated because her husband passed away to live with her daughter up in Seattle and she'd been healthy, but then she was getting diabetes and hypertension, you know, long story short, they found out that, um, she was kind of homebound. She didn't have her own car. She didn't know how to use the local transit and, and the health coach, you know, really understood, you know, what were the dynamics in her life and just gave her a little tutorial, you know, and literally went out and rode the bus with her. That bus pass, you know, did more than any medication ever would have done. Yeah. Um, and it was like a, you know, a rebirth uh, for this lady. Um, so it's these common sense things, but, you know, the least common thing is common sense sometimes. Right. Right. Wow. That's a, that's a great story. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you that was um, provided to me was, what are, tell us about centers of excellence. Yeah. Well, centers of excellence are important um, and and true centers of excellence, not self-proclaimed centers of excellence because there's some of those. Um, But true centers of excellence have models that have stood the test of time where they have very high rates of diagnostic accuracy and it's pretty shocking the rates of misdiagnosis i mean you're talking somewhere between 20 and as high as 60 percent misdiagnosis for different conditions um, particularly these expensive complex conditions Um, and so the centers of excellence they see a lot more cases typically and they typically have team-based models and they're typically staff is on salary. They're not paid on piece parts, so they don't have an incentive incentive to, you know, do a surgery just because they get more money there. Um, and D- so Dave, I'm just going to stop you for you- a second. So if, so if I actually like Googled centers of excellence, would these come yep. up or, okay. Okay. So th- there would, I guess, yep. okay. They're not medical centers of excellence, just centers of excellence. Well, they are medical centers of excellence. And so there's, um, places like the Mayo Clinic, for example, Virginia Mason, I mentioned earlier. Right. So for these, um, typically where you see these being utilized by um, employers, particularly, is uh, for expensive, complex things with like um, neurological uh, procedures, you know, back surgeries, organ transplants, and so on. And so what you see employers doing is saying, look, there's so much money 
and so much potential harm that can be done here, uh, or, you know, on the positive side, you know, ensure people are get back on their feet as quickly as possible, that it's totally worth it to fly somebody, you know, a state over or a few states over with their spouse or, you know, appropriate person. Um, because, you know, like we'll use the, the spinal procedure. There's places like, um, uh, they're just terrible in terms of the over-treatment and, and the centers of excellence bring people in, really understand what's going on, get the proper diagnostic situation laid out. And then, you know, of course, if you have a misdiagnosis, no matter, you know, no treatment plan is right. Um, and so you get the right treatment plan based on the proper diagnosis. And so, yeah, you look at companies like PepsiCo and Lowe's and Walmart and others pioneered this, and then that then became available to really anybody um, that uses these. And, and they're, they're scattered around the country. And again, it varies some by particular conditions, you know, organ transplants are not a really common thing. So you definitely want to go to places where they know what they're doing. I mean, one of the jarring statistics uh, that came out of the study that Walmart did, you know, and they're the largest private employer, was they found that uh, fully 40%, 4-0, of the planned organ transplants in the local community hospital were medically unnecessary when they went for a second opinion to a place like the Mayo Clinic. That's pretty staggering, yep. you know, to think about something that that um, serious, invasive, you know, whatever, lots yeah. of risk, invasive. Yep. You're certainly going to walk out with, um, you know, plenty of medication, some that you have to take for your life, and to think that 40 percent of the time that wouldn't even be necessary. Wow! And you know, you you see that in cancer, some really, um, lots of inappropriate treatment. I mean, 70 percent of um, women getting chemotherapy for breast cancer, uh, it just doesn't work for them. You know, the, the physiology of their body just doesn't work. And that's a lot of pain and suffering and cost, um, for that to be true. Yeah. You know, Dave, I, I can, I can totally see more books for you down the line. You could probably go after the insurance industry if you wanted to, (laughs) because I just see them, you know, tying in with a lot of this. Well, it is really an industry-wide deal. I mean, they certainly I don't let them off the hook right. um, by any by any means. Um, but it is a team effort. Um, if you look at the different players in the picture, probably the one that was most jarring to me was hospitals um, and and sort of the abuse that they have heaped on their staff to begin with, the nurses and doctors. And then some of the, you know, they're working in a world of perverse incentives, but they're making the most of it. And, you know, I'm coming from the position of having uh, spent, uh, you know, in consulting, you know, in dozens of different hospitals and then, you know, my tech business, hundreds of different hospitals, my customer. And, and I really became acutely aware of how so many hospitals have really lost their way in terms of what their the mission that their founders set these up to do to begin right. with. You right. know, particularly um, the uh, so-called nonprofit hospitals, which is a real misnomer because seventy percent of the the most profitable hospitals are you know I just call them tax exempt. Um, somebody's sadly, getting that profit. Away. Yeah, somebody's somebody's getting rich there. Yeah, yeah, and. 
you know, there is, they, they're quite adept at kind of hiding the profits in the form of, um, uh, you know, buying up. I mean, one, they run incredibly inefficiently. Um, and, but two, they, they shovel money into foundations, into real estate. Um, you know, it's, it's really been a massive transfer of wealth from the working and middle class to, um, not all hospitals, but sadly, um, far too many, um, have really, like I said, they've lost their way, um, and are, are really leading to record levels of burnout and even suicide amongst doctors and nurses. Um, and then that naturally ripples down into the entire healthcare delivery system. You know, you have, you know, just common sense. If the doctors and nurses are abused, they're not going to be able to be at their best. Um, and it just, it just, it's a horrible sort of domino effect. Wow. Well, thank you for looking at all of this. Thank you for writing about it. Um, I know I said I have your next book and it could be about the insurance, but then what probably gets me going more than anything else is, you know, the fact that we advertise some extremely dangerous drugs on television to consumers, but that is a subject for another day. I could go on and on about that one (laughs) and another another book, another conversation. Well, I do touch on it because really the, you know, this book, which, you know, I, I'm making it available um, as a free download, you know, for your listeners, they can go to healthrosetta.org and and get the book for free because I want to, you know, I care more about saving lives than a few lost book sales. And I actually go into, um, yeah, some of the drivers of the opioid crisis, but it really gets at how the opioid crisis is an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. And then I do actually go through the dynamics of the health insurers and the hospitals and, and some of what's going on. And, and people find it to be a real eye opener and explains a lot of the odd things that are going on in our industry here. Well, I think that's awesome. And I'm going to say that again, if you want to download Dave's book, go to healthrosetta.org. The title of the book is The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call. And I am sure that that would probably be good reading for most of our listeners. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And I appreciate all the work you've done on this. And I wish you success in whatever you do next. And, you know, feel free to reach out to us if you have some other aspect of the, not just the opioid crisis, but addiction in general. And if, you know, if we can talk to you again, that would be great. Yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing with your show. Um, It's so important and such a big challenge that, you know, really requires everybody to step up and do their part. And um, I will definitely take you up on that that offer. And um, I look forward to any further conversation we might have. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I thought that was a very interesting take on the opioid crisis, not not something that we've looked at. And yet, um, you know, as he was talking, you got the same idea that he then said, which is that if, if we limit primary care physicians to seven minutes per patient, because that's all they get paid for, Mm -hmm. then what are they going to do? And it's like you said, they're going to prescribe a drug, or they're going to refer, 
or what was the third thing you said? Um, yeah, MRIs or, or imaging, yeah, or recommend like some that. kind of procedure. Either yeah. recommend a procedure, like an X-ray or whatever. And um, yeah, and the and yeah, and well, the so, uh, sorry, go ahead, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say in the middle of that, and then we have him saying that, and then it kind of like we went on to uh, a different topic on it. But I was going to say that to me, that kind of violates a physician's Hippocratic oath to do no harm because if you become very money motivated. As a physician, like trying to turn out patients as quick as possible by doing whatever the quickest thing you can think of is to handle whatever their issue is, I feel like that violates that oath to do no harm. I feel like that is harmful yep. if you think about it, because with that kind of thing in place, with this like whole seven minute per patient thing, it's like, look, um, that was a breeding ground for a lot of this, and doctors were like turning them out like they're turning out like waiters turn over tables. I think like, you're absolutely right, but it's the same thing with a lot of rehabs, yo, which is 100%. get them in, get, get the insurance money, and get them out. And if they're not fully um, rehabilitated, which we know that they're not in what eighty percent of the cases, Roughly. then okay, well then we just get them back and we do the whole thing again. It's the same. It's actually very very similar to I think what happens in the rehab industry. If there's, I'm doing that in quotes. If there is such a thing as a rehab industry, it's Another, the same thing. I mean, it is, unfortunately, and I always say it's unfortunate, is that there is a rehab industry. It is a lucrative business for a lot of you know treatment centers who just want to build people's insurance, give the minimal care possible, and turn people in and out as fast as they can, you'll lose the humanity behind what you're doing. Because doing what I do, where I do it, it's like, I don't lose that hu- that the humanity behind it. I don't lose the idea that like we're there to help people actually get well. I couldn't imagine being in half these other centers out there that are just like, making an epic profit off the suffering of people literally offering them minimal care and minimal solutions for maximum money. Um, and you're right. It's the same thing with the primary yeah. care industry these days. And it's like, the fact is, as healthcare has become a major industry, we've lost, I think it's lost sight to a point of the fact that it's there to help people right. live a better quality life. Right. But I right agree. now it's not doing that. And I think he made a valid point with everything he said. There's actually a point in, in when he was talking and I was like, I started to like really think about what he was saying. I was like, oh God, this is like really messed up. <laughs> this is really messed up. And I was like, whoa, but it's true. But um, he gave a good example too of where it's being done correctly. Right. And I think, you know, you know, there are these centers of excellence. Like it was interesting when he said that because I have a friend who had, I don't, I don't know if he had a mild stroke or a mild heart attack, but he just, he still wasn't doing well and was kind of having trouble like walking. And um, they went to the Mayo Clinic to finally get, you know, the ultimate diagnosis and the ultimate test. And he's doing way better now than he was. And I don't, I can't even tell you what was done, but there's a lot to be said for places like that where you can get the care you need, similar to a place like Narconon where you don't just get a 28-day, oh, gee, well, okay, you're rehabbed, okay, goodbye. You know, it's such a full step and such a full program. Here's my little commercial for Narconon, which includes physical healing, mental healing, emotional healing, and spiritual healing, and then the um, tools with which to go forth in life and not fall into the trap of addiction again. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of those places, but I think he's, he's making a good point to go after healthcare as an industry and 
you know, highlight, um, you know, things like the Rosen Hotels, which are doing the right thing for their employees. Yeah, so. I'm just still reeling from that statistic of like the 40% of organ transplants were that you considered don't need. unnecessary. Yeah. It's like, oh my good lord. <laughs> it's like, that's, unbel- that's unreal to me. That's well, the reason why it's not unreal to me is because we've talked about this, that that unfortunately there's a very high percentage of people in this country that don't own their own health. True. And if I were told, I was told I needed a very simple procedure on my eyes. A very simple procedure. And I asked a relative who's a doctor, and he said, I don't really recommend it. I said, okay. So I went to a couple other doctors and asked about it mm. and how, you know, what were the, were there any horrible side effects? You know, how could it ultimately affect me? And I made the decision to go ahead and do it. It wasn't that invasive a procedure, mm-hmm. but I owned my own health. Like I didn't just say, oh, okay, good. I'll go do that. Okay, bye. Okay, let's go do that. You know, and I think that too often with prescriptions, as we've talked about, or with procedures. We're too trusting. We're too trusting. We don't research it. Um, My husband goes the other side, like he researches too much, I think. But, you know, I think that there is that that aspect of it that we don't, you know, we don't own our own health. Mm And it happens with prescriptions. We've talked about this with parents. You know, if you have a teenager or a child that has any kind of a sports injury, don't just take the prescription and run with it. That can be so deadly when there are other alternatives that can, you know, that can be done. There are other alternatives. Mm-hmm. And, he did, and he did bring that oh. up, which was good. So I don't, I don't think it's all black, Jason. There are it's, groups it's like not, Narcanon no, no, that do good you're things. Right. There, I mean, there's definitely, there were definitely... Good pieces of information. The whole thing was good information, I think. Yes. Yeah. It's good data to have. Yep. And I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom. There's definitely good stuff there, too. But it's just like, huh. It just makes you think. I thought that was very interesting. I'm glad we did that. Yep. Me, too. So. And so then we're going to talk again next week. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you'll have some things to tell us after you get back from L.A. Oh, yes. Should be interesting. I'm sure. I'm interested to see. One of my uh, coworkers that's in LA was asking me earlier today. She's like, well, what time do you land and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, we land at like 1030 tomorrow night and we have to drive like an hour to the hotel and things like that. And she's like, be careful of all the people driving on the highways in LA who are stoned out of their minds and just drift in and out of their lanes. Oh, that's yeah. a huge problem. And so I was like, oh, well, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> thanks for the heads up. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, that's another topic. But yes, I will bring back some interesting tidbits next week, I hope. Perfect. We'll talk again next week. You got it. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 